From the studios at WMFE in Orlando, Florida, this is the Space Exploration Podcast that asks the question, are we there yet? Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. When Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin landed on the moon, millions tuned in live to watch the event. The moon landing inspired many to pursue an education and career in aerospace in what is now called the Apollo Effect. Phil Metzger was one of those kids who grew up around the Apollo program on Florida's Space Coast and went on to study engineering and eventually work at NASA. He was nudged by his dad, Theodore Metzger, who worked on the Apollo program. Now Metzger works at UCF's Florida Space Institute as a planetary scientist. And Phil rejoins the podcast today to talk about growing up in the era of Apollo. Hello, Brendan. I'm glad to be back. Well, let's start with your inspiration, because you are not the first generation to be involved in space exploration. Let's talk about your dad. What, what did he do? Yeah, well, my dad worked during the Apollo program. He was in the Air Force, and when he retired from the Air Force, he got a job working out at the Kennedy Space Center. So he came back to his hometown to work on space. And so tell me about growing up with a dad working in the Apollo program. That had to have been really cool as, as a young boy, right? Yeah, it was. I grew up assuming that this is what you do when you're an adult. You work on space programs. <laughs> so I um, I remember I built paper models of satellites, and I remember going out to the open house at the Kennedy Space Center whenever they had a family day. Um, all I grew up in a bedroom community of the space program, so a lot of my neighbors' parents worked on the space program as well. Kind of paint me a picture of growing up in that environment. You know, what was it like in school? What was it like for neighborhood block parties or your friends? As you mentioned, it was a bedroom community for the Kennedy Space Center. What was it like growing up there? I think as a child, I didn't have a perspective on it. I just assumed this was normal. And so I didn't appreciate it as much as I should have. Uh, My parents would make us watch all the night launches, all the, well, all the launches. And when I say they made us, I mean that we didn't want to. <laughs> As teenagers, they would force us to go down to the shore of the river and we would complain. And, um, but they were beautiful. We saw a lot of beautiful launches. I saw a lot of rockets blow up on launch. And um, that had to have been cool as a teenager, right? Yeah. I remember one streak where three in a row blew up, one way up high in the sky. So, uh, But that was normal, too. You know, you grew up watching rockets explode. That was a part of life. Mm-hmm. What did your dad do for, uh, for NASA? Well, he was a ground systems technician. And he actually actually wasn't technically a technician. He was in logistics. So he was a flight engineer in the Air Force. And then he worked on the logistics of the rocket parts and also the ground system parts. Um, he had office. He, he would work in the offices of, in the VAB or out on the launch pad, various locations, keeping the cranes working, the the fueling systems. And you know he he wanted to, me to be an engineer because. He, he saw the engineers out there working, and he, his dream was that one day I would grow up and be an engineer. So he pushed me in that direction. When I was in college, I tried to go in other directions, but he kept saying, no, you need to be an engineer. And so I eventually listened to him and became an engineer. And I worked as an engineer out there for about 15 years before I went back to grad school and became a planetary scientist. Mm-hmm. What was your dad's name? 
Theodore Metzger or Ted Metzger. Ted Metzger. And I mean, what did he bring home with him? You know, obviously he's, you know, brought home some passion for space exploration. uh, But I mean, would he tell stories about what he saw at work at the dinner table or what was it like? Well, he was very proud of working on the space program. He was, uh, I mean, deeply, deeply proud. He's got a certificate that says he participated in the Apollo 11 launch. And we still have that. Um, my father's deceased now, but um, he didn't talk about the details of his work very much. Um, when, whenever there was an open house day, he took us out there. He made sure that we went to the clean rooms and we saw the fire department spraying their foam that would extinguish fires on the rockets. And he took us to every opportunity. He really wanted to expose us to space. Um, I think I would like to point out that although he was working on the ground systems as a logistics person, he knew in his heart that that was just as important a job as a scientist or an engineer or an astronaut. There's an anecdotal story from Apollo. I think Werner von Braun was at the Kennedy Space Center, and he saw a person working who turns out was a janitor. And he, Von Braun asked him what he was doing, and this person said, I'm helping put Americans on the moon. And that was my father's attitude. He was a part of putting humanity on the moon, and he was deeply proud of that. Where were you when Apollo 11 launched from the Kennedy Space Center? I was behind the United States Post Office, which was on the shore of the Indian River in Titusville. Now there are apartment buildings at that location, but back then it was just a dirt field. And I couldn't see over the crowd. It was so crowded, all these adults around me. I was seven years old, I think. So there was an awning behind the post office where the mail trucks could drive under when it rained. And so I climbed up one of the poles of that awning so I could see over the adults to watch the launch. And take us back to that moment. What was it like seeing such a historical mission launch, knowing that your dad had an integral part in it? Well, like I said, I I think we lacked perspective. We didn't realize how amazing it was. When I became an adult, that was when I really grasped the significance that humanity is stepping on another world for the first time. As a child, of course, it was exciting because of the great crowds of people coming into town with their campers and the, the city was choked with, with visitors from all across the United States. So that was exciting. We would take our lawn chairs down to the, to the shore on all of the Apollo launches. Um, and then the, the launch was beautiful. You'd see the, the flames. You'd see the smoke. You'd see the light as the rocket started to get up a little bit above the ground. You'd see that trail of flame. And my favorite part was when it was high in the sky and it staged. The first stage would fall away and the second stage would ignite. And at that high altitude, it would flare way out this great umbrella of rocket exhaust plume. It was beautiful. Now, some years later after the Apollo programs, you go to school, you study engineering. Um, What was your first job out of school? I worked for NASA. All right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a, um, a person was at my college visiting his daughter, and we ch- happened to meet, and he invited me to come down for a job interview, which I did, and he hired me. So my first job right out of school was working on the communication and navigation systems on the space shuttle. At that time, a lot of the Apollo veterans were still there. My boss was an Apollo veteran, 
And um, there were paraphernalia from the Apollo days on their office walls and on their cubicle walls. So um, it was like moving right into that environment. Mm-hmm. What about your dad? How proud was Theodore to know that, that you were working for NASA right out of college? Yeah, he was very proud. I think my fam- whole family was. Um, yeah, I, I don't know what else to say. <laughs> Talk a little bit about, um, you said when you started work on the shuttle program, there were a lot of Apollo veterans that were working on shuttle. Um, what were some of the lessons you learned from um, from those, you know, human spaceflight veterans? Well, um, you know, we, we had a deep heritage of launching rockets by the time I got there. Because even before Apollo, there had been Gemini, before that was Mercury, before that, there were all the launches on the Air Force side, atlases, and all these people had gone from one program to another. So we had built up a deep heritage of how do you launch rockets. And um, I'd like to say that is a national treasure, that cadre of people that we've nurtured over decades. You know, I don't know, it's like 70 or 80 years of acquired expertise in rocketry that the United States possesses. That's a true national treasure, those people. So to be able to move into those offices and work with those people was an amazing experience. They um, Things you wouldn't think about, like when you put a bolt through a washer and screw it down, you don't want the washer and the bolt to touch the box if they're made out of different kinds of metal because that makes a little micro battery and it'll rust the metal. So applying the right coatings on the metal, um, bonding and grounding, all these little details that took decades of experience to be able to put a rocket together. And, you know, when we really saw this, um, when we really saw the benefit of this was in the space station program because we NASA hired new contractors to build the space station. They went out and hired a lot of people who didn't have the experience. And the program got in trouble. They weren't able to build the hardware fast enough. They weren't able to do the test program. They couldn't keep schedule. And so NASA went to the Kennedy Space Center and pulled together a team of about 100 people, 120 people, and said, You've got that experience. We want you to travel all over the country to all these contractors, from the piece parts to the flight units to the to the modules of the space station, and teach them how to build rockets. And so the Space Station Hardware Integration Office went out and did that, and it pulled the space station program back together and got it into flight. So that was that was the benefit of that team that has been nurtured at the Kennedy Space Center. Mm-hmm. Do you remember your your first shuttle launch that you worked on? Of course. Yeah, it was terrifying to me because <laughs> before I worked for NASA, I just thought NASA was this world where perfection exists and it's so perfect that there's nothing to worry about. And then I got there and I realized that these are real people working on very complex hardware, much more complex than I had imagined. The um, the space shuttle main engines are a technological marvel and so many intricate pieces and everything is being maintained. Problems happen every launch. They have to find out what's wrong and fix it. And I was terrified to realize how complicated this really is. 
I don't think the public still has any idea about it. And um, so I was terrified. And um, every launch, I was terrified. Um, and then we lost one. We lost the 10th the launch that I was there. And um, so it was, it was uh, a really bad several years as we recovered, as we figured out how it happened, how did we make this mistake, and how do we keep it from happening again. Um, but then, as you know, we had another loss. We lost Columbia in a very different kind of accident. And um, what I want to say is that trying to manage a program where you're operating the most complex thing humanity has ever built is it's, it's never going to be free of risk. There's always going to be those, well, as long as, as long as we're humans, you know, maybe when we create better artificial intelligence, we can make rocket launching perfect, but um, it's the nature of rocket launching. It's an overused phrase, but space is hard. So that was what I saw when I first hired there. I realized, wow, space really is hard. Now, does that get you to think back to those early programs of Mercury and Gemini and even Apollo, you know, where they had just a little bit of experience with this stuff and took these enormous risks and there was loss? Um, Does that kind of put it into perspective as to how difficult a mission like Apollo 11 was, knowing that after 30-some years of space flight, you're getting to the shuttle and you're saying, oh, man, this is really complicated. Like, does that put into perspective as to what these, you know, these folks were going through during the early days of, of human space flight? Oh, sure, it does. And, and I heard people telling stories from the early days. Like, I heard stories about atlases that would go off course and then they had to push the destruct button and pieces of the rocket falling in the public's parking lot on Cape Canaveral. Um, so yeah, it was, and in fact, one of my friends, his father worked for the Martin company, which was building rockets. It's now part of Martin Marietta, which became part of Lockheed Martin. And, um, they offered their employees a bonus. I think they said a thousand dollars per employee if they could launch one without blowing it up. And (laughs) this was on the table for a while and they finally got some that they didn't blow up. They got several in a row. Um, and so then they stopped giving them the bonuses. But it was it was that kind of an environment where there were so many variables, so many things that you could break. We were figuring it out as we go along and acquiring that expertise that we now have. You know, we now have this deep expertise. It came through making a lot of mistakes. Um, you know, I like to say that as scientists and as engineers, we are good at finding solutions. Um we are not so good at figuring out what the questions are. So uh, experience teaches us the questions. Experience shows us the problems. And then we do engineering to find the solutions. Can you give us a sense of what it's like when tragedy does happen? When I'm thinking back to the Apollo program, I'm thinking of Apollo 1. But but you have a sense of what happens when there is a loss of life you know, whether it's Challenger or Columbia, what is the the feeling that goes on with the group of engineers that, you know, had the responsibility of, of keeping that crew safe? So the, um, the sense of loss is terribly deep because the space program really does feel like a family. And when a crew is lost, you feel like it's your family that you've let down and you've lost family members. And so it was 
very deeply felt. Everybody was hurt to the core. And and then there's this deep desire to find out what happened because we don't want their loss to be in vain. We want to make sure that the those crew members' vision of space exploration goes on and that we learn what we can from their sacrifice. And, and so um, during the response to the Columbia accident, for example, all of my friends were trying to redeem the loss. And so a lot of them went to Texas and were tramping through the wilderness of Texas to find the pieces of the space shuttle to put the pieces together. I was on a team that was doing analysis of the amateur videos that were taken to learn every, to glean every little piece of information we could from those videos. So everybody pulled together and pulled with all of our heart. I used to, in fact, I can distinctly remember many times working on solving the physics to interpret those videos and this sense of grief just overwhelms me. And I would have to walk away from my desk and walk the hallways of the ONC building, literally weeping, um, until I could get back to my desk and work some more. But through tragedy comes triumph, right? You you learn something from that, and it makes the next mission even more important, but but even more incredible when it launches, right? Can, can you give us a sense of, of just the incredible things that that you've done at NASA and watching a shuttle launch, a successful launch from the Kennedy Space Center. What is that feeling like? <laughs> yeah, so I remember the first time I was an employee at the Kennedy Space Center watching that first launch and standing next to another new employee. And the shuttle leaves the pad. You see it start to raise up in the sky, and we're three miles away, so it takes about 15 seconds for the sound to reach us. And when it hits you, it's this boom that hits you in your chest, and it was literally flapping the jacket sleeves. I could feel my jacket shaking on my body from the vibrations, and we're and it gets louder and louder, and then I had this moment of pan, moment of panic where I wondered if it was going to kill me because I didn't know how loud it was going to get. And right about the time I started to be afraid for my life, it started to taper off and get quieter because, you know, we were right on the three-mile limit of the launch, the blast danger zone. So we were as close as you were allowed to be. And um, and then after it went up, my friend looked over at me and said, wow, that was like a religious experience. And I said, yeah, that was. I had I had a similar experience my first time out there covering a launch. I think it was a, a SpaceX Falcon 9 being that close and feeling it. And and that's how you describe it to people, right? You don't you don't see a launch, you don't hear a launch. You feel a launch, right? It it's it's yes. through your bones. Yeah, it's it's pretty wild. It's a full sensory experience. Yeah. Did it ever get um I mean, with the dozens of launches, I'm sure, that you were a part of working on the shuttle program, did, did it ever become routine? Um, did you ever feel complacent in, in, in your job? No, never. Um, we were always discovering problems. Every day was new. Things would break in orbit, and then we would have to figure out why. We were constantly upgrading the vehicle, replacing pieces, making it better. And so every day was new. Every day was 
in a sense, unstructured. Do you have a favorite mission from your time working on shuttles? Can I put you on the spot? That's really hard. Really, really hard. Um, a least favorite mission, maybe one that gave you a lot of trouble. <laughs> well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you one. I think I can pick a favorite. Okay. It was a, an amazing moment. It was the 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 time that they were going to capture the communication satellite in low Earth orbit that had failed to boost. Oh yeah, yeah. And they were going to repair it, and the the mechanism of capturing it didn't work, and so they positioned astronauts in the payload bay. And the astronauts grabbed the spacecraft with their hands and stopped it from rotating. That was amazing. Yeah, that, that's a pretty a primordial way to, to do things, right? <laughs> reach your hand out and grab it. Right, right. But to see them, to see these astronauts position on the, on the edge of this vehicle hundreds of miles above the Earth, and reaching out with their hands with these gloves, which if they t- tear their gloves, they're going to lose the air in their suit and they're going to die. But to stand there like precariously in free fall and grab a satellite in orbit was shocking. It was amazing. It was beautiful. NASA has been charged by this administration to return to the moon by 2024. This is an accelerated time period. Um, and work is beginning or continuing on NASA's Artemis program to do that. Um, as someone who spent so much time working in the shuttle program and worked with the folks that made Apollo possible, what advice would you give to the folks that are working on the next moonshot? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think they need my advice, for one thing. I think they are... Um, they're well-trained, they know their jobs, and they're doing them well. But um, if I could say any one little piece of advice, I would say cherish it. Cherish these moments because uh, um, it's over too soon. You know, I, I, I've moved on. I'm not in the space shuttle program, and the shuttle program has ended, and I really miss those days. One of my friends, Rob Mueller at the Space Center, said, I don't think people realize how good the shuttle program is and they're going to miss it when it is gone. And he was right. Um, those days were precious. So as hard as, as those people are working on the moon program, um, they need to cherish the days. Mm-hmm. Do you think that there's still some of that longing and, and regret from the Apollo folks that, hey, we, we miss this program? Um. I, I would believe probably so. Um, I, although I want to, I'll bring up a different feeling I think that they have. They're, the main feeling we have is actually a, a sense of disappointment that we haven't gone further. Um, if you talk to the veterans of the Apollo program, they'll tell you that they thought we would be on Mars by now. They thought that we would keep moving. And, um, we had this period where America pulled back from doing the greater things. The NASA budget was cut way back when Apollo was canceled early. So there is a, a sense of disappointment, but there is a lot of excitement in the community right now. We feel that the Artemis program is jump-starting our vision that we can do greater things in space, that we can go on to the moon and then to Mars. I want to ask you about that because... In the days of Apollo, we had this, you know, incredible triumph of of not only the NASA American space program, but humanity by putting humans on the moon. 
which inspired people to get into science and engineering to do just that. You were inspired by your dad who was working on that. Um, and with the absence of something like that, has that put this country at a disadvantage in the sense that we don't have the people that are as inspired to get into the space or aerospace field? Are, are, are we looking at a, a shortfall in talent to help with this Artemis uh, mission? I think you're right that the space program is tremendously inspirational, and we we need a program, we need a destination like the Artemis destination in order to maximize the benefit of the space program. Um, the I, I have a friend who travels the world doing developmental work in war zones, and he'll go into a war zone and set up a space day, and he'll ask people like myself to Skype into these these children and talk to them about space. And he tells me nothing is like space to help people lift their eyes above the hardships of life here on the earth because space is expansive. It doesn't have measurable boundaries. And it paints a picture of the future that could be, the future that we want to create. When we show people that we're moving into space, it gives them an it gives them a door, a front door that they can go through to participate in creating that better future. Thinking over the past fifty years, are you optimistic in the direction of where we are going when it comes to space exploration? And then I want to ask you if you think Theodore Metzger would be optimistic about where we are 50 years on. Yeah, so I'm, I am very optimistic. I think we've had a lot of excellent developments over the past 10 or 20 years. We see commercial space starting to take off like it never has before. We see private investors creating companies, billionaires creating companies, and we see a lot of innovation coming out of that sector. Um, I've got funding that I do research at, at the University of Central Florida that comes from organizations other than NASA paying me to do R&D on space technology. So that's a very exciting development. And we see um, competing visions for the future in space. Elon Musk wants to put humans on Mars to create communities on Mars, which will diversify the human environment to to help prevent us from being wiped out by an asteroid, for example. Um, and then Jeff Bezos is interested in moving industry off the Earth to save the environment of Earth. And these competing visions are actually highly synergistic. They The technologies for one support the technologies for the other, and they contribute to creating greater cislunar economic activity. And that is synergistic with the objectives of NASA. And NASA is working to help catalyze these commercial ventures in space. So all of these things working together are tremendously inspirational and contribute to my sense of optimism. But also the terrestrial technologies, artificial intelligence and robotics, are going to be vital to expanding beyond the limits of a single planet. And the developments we've seen in terrestrial robotics cause me to believe that we really are going to be settling beyond planet Earth within this century, within the next several decades. Mm -hmm. What about your dad? Would he be optimistic for the future? I think he would be. I think he'd be very excited. I think he would 
be very proud to see that I'm still working in space and celebrating what he did 50 years ago. We've been speaking with Phil Metzger. He is a planetary scientist at the Florida Space Institute at the University of Central Florida. He spent 30 years with NASA, and his father, Theodore Metzger, worked on the Apollo program at the Kennedy Space Center. Uh, Phil Metzger, thanks so much for speaking with us. That was my pleasure, Brendan. That's going to do it for this episode. The conversation continues online. Follow us on Facebook, search Are We There Yet Podcast, or send us a tweet. We're at AWTY Mars. Or if you have a story, idea, or guest pitch, send me an email, Are We There Yet at WMFE.org. This podcast is a production of WMFE, and our theme music was composed by Kevin McLeod. More space news is online at WMFE.org slash space. Until next time, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.